The Guardian. Guardian Podcast, sponsored by audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash free download, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details. Questions to the Prime Minister, Mr Mark Menzies. Question number one, Mr Speaker. Thank you, Mr Speaker. This morning I had meetings with ministerial colleagues and others, and in addition to my duties in this House, I shall have further such meetings later today. Menzies. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Small businesses concerned that Britain suffers from a sick note culture. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that an example should be set from the very top and that those who throw sickies and then swan up to a football match oh. in a Rolls Royce oh. is setting a very bad example indeed. Um, my, my old friend does make an important point. We do have a problem of a sick note culture, and I have to report, Mr Speaker, the problem can sometimes go to the very top. Uh, the Leader of the Opposition was meant to be addressing a health rally, uh, called a sickie, and three hours later was at a Hull football match. And uh, I think the question is, as well as knowing the miracle cure, I think there is an important question, which was, what was it that first attracted him to the multi-millionaire owner of the Hull football club? Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker, following the Prime Minister's recent trip to Washington, we now know that the timetable for the withdrawal of British and other international combat forces in Afghanistan will be reviewed at the NATO summit in Chicago in May. The Prime Minister has previously set out a timetable that would see combat operations for British troops cease by the end of 2014. Given the recent statements by the US Defence Secretary and the French President about an accelerated timetable for their troops, can the Prime Minister confirm the British Government's position going into that summit? Well, first of all, let me take this opportunity on behalf of the whole House to once again pay tribute to the magnificent work that our armed forces do in Afghanistan. We had another reminder yesterday of the very high price that we've paid. In terms of the programme of withdrawal, what I've said absolutely stands, which is that we will not be in a combat role in Afghanistan after 2014, nor will we have anything like the number of troops that we have now. We will be performing a training task, particularly helping with the Officer Training Academy. Between now and 2014, it's important that we have a sensible profile for the reduction in troop numbers. That should be largely based on the conditions in terms of the three parts of Helmand province that we're still responsible for and the transition that takes place. What I discussed with President Obama in America is making sure that in 2013, if there are opportunities to change the nature of the mission and be more in support uh, rather than a direct combat role, then that's something that I think everyone will want to see. We can make further progress on that issue at the Chicago summit and announcements later on in the year about that. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, I thank the Prime Minister for that answer. and I, I know he will keep the House informed of any change in the British position and indeed the, the precise timetable and, and any evolution of that. Uh, I'm sure he will also agree that in the wake of the tragic killing of Afghan civilians last week, that is something we all abhor, but we must carry on with our mission. Now, President Karzai has recommended that international troops should be confined to their main bases. Notwithstanding the tragedy of the incident that occurred, 
Does he agree with me that while international troops are there, they must be able to perform their role of protecting the Afghan population? And can he tell us what discussions he's had with President Karzai and his representatives about the impact of any change in that role on security in Helmand were this to happen? Prime Minister. Obviously, our teams are in permanent contact in terms of Afghanistan, and I myself speak to President Karzai uh, regularly. Obviously, what happened in Afghanistan with the dreadful shootings that were carried out by the rogue American soldier is a dreadful event, and that must be properly prosecuted and dealt with for what it was, which was a mass murder. And I know President Obama takes that view uh, very strongly. In terms of making sure that we work with the Afghans, as I've said, the key is making sure that we transition in the three parts of Helmand that we're responsible for and that we hand over to Afghan troops and that they're in the lead as soon as, as, soon as they are capable of fulfilling that task. I don't have uh, any concerns at the moment about uh, the role of uh, British uh, troops. They're able to carry out the tasks uh, which they are allotted. We're making good progress in the three parts of, of Helmand. We'll be in permanent touch with the Afghans about that transition. But transition is a process, and we should be, uh, as the Chancellor will be explaining in, in, in a moment or two, we should be trying to make the most of the transition that's going to take place. Mr Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, I know he agrees with me that dialogue with President Karzai and his representatives on this issue is very, very important, particularly in the light of the comments that were made. Now, a few days ago, the Taliban took the decision to suspend preliminary talks with the United States. In light of this, can the Prime Minister tell the House what his assessment of the significance of this is? And does he agree with me that we owe it to our troops serving in Afghanistan to be much more urgent, urgently focused on the task of securing a lasting political settlement? Can he tell us how the British government plans to play its role in getting the political process restarted? Prime Minister. Well, I thank him for that question. I think it is, it is vitally important we get this right. I mean, since taking office, and to be fair to the last government, the last government took this view as well, the British position has always been that we need to have a political settlement as, uh, in order to ensure the best possible outcome for the people of Afghanistan. Britain has been pushing for political reconciliation and reintegration, and I had very productive talks with President Obama last week, because the American view is now the same. They want to support that political process. Of course, uh, the Taliban have said what they said last week, and I would just make this point. We are committed to handing over to uh, the Afghan government, the Afghan military, the Afghan police, and the numbers of Afghan military and police are on track. We're committed to doing that at the end of 2014. We believe that can happen even without a political settlement with a uh, satisfactory outcome for the United Kingdom. But clearly, it would be better for everyone concerned if it was accompanied by a political uh, settlement. Now, the work for that, including setting up a Taliban political office in Qatar, is well is progressing well. And I believe it's in everyone's interest that we keep pushing that agenda. But the Taliban should be in no doubt. There are the opportunities for a political settlement if they give up violence, renounce al-Qaeda and want to play a part in the future politics of Afghanistan. But if they don't take those steps, we will continue to defeat them on the battlefield every time they raise their head. Mr Simon Hart. Um, thank you, Mr Speaker. I know yeah. the Prime Minister will agree that the Air Ambulance is a fantastic charity yeah. which, yeah. Enjoys, yeah. which enjoys support across the whole House. However, a typical Air Ambulance branch needs to raise about £5 million a year and yet can only claim gift aid on, uh, often on about 5% of that. Will he support my efforts to make it easier for charities to get the gift aid that they're due? Yeah. 
Well, first of all, let me join my honourable friend in paying tribute to the Air Ambulance Service. They do an amazing job in responding to emergencies and save many, many lives. Uh, we are providing £3 billion a year, a, a year in tax reliefs for charities, of which gift aid makes up around a billion. And we are increasing the amount that charities are allowed to claim gift aid on without the need for a declaration. That's taking it up to £5,000, and I think that will be a significant help to great charities like the one he mentions. Anne Cluid. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. When the Disability Minister came to Wales last week, she said it was for others to consider whether Remploy's budgets should be devolved to Wales. I think when she said others, she meant you, Prime Minister. And as you know, the Welsh Government has already said it's committed to supporting the Remploy workers in Wales. Will you therefore devolve the Remploy budgets? For the Welsh factories, for the next three years, in order to ensure that all those factories that can have a future do have a future. I will look carefully at the proposal the Honourable Lady puts forward. So no, it is put forward in, in a, uh, a, a, a spirit of being very constructive. What I would say is whether this decision is reserved or dissolved, resolved, res sorry, reserved or devolved, it doesn't actually mean you don't have to take difficult decisions. The fact is we did ask the Chief Executive of Disability Rights UK to look at this issue, and the outcome she proposed is supported by MenCap, Mind, Disability Wales, Sense for Deaf Blind People, and the Centre for, for medical, me, mental health. And the point is this government funding allows for half a billion pounds over five years for Remploy, but even that isn't enough to keep those factories open. And the reason for that is while access to work awards are around £2,900 per disabled uh, person, the cost of each job in Remploy is around £25,000 per person. So if the aim of policy is to use the money that we have to support disabled people into work, you can understand why the review came to the decision it did. Gavin Williamson. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The last few weeks have seen the start of the £350 million construction of Jaguar Land Rover's new engine factory in my constituency of South Staffordshire. Does my right honourable friend agree that this is a sign of growing confidence and belief in British manufacturing, which is in stark contrast to the destruction wrought on it by the last friend makes an important point. The Jaguar Land Rover news is excellent news for the West Midlands, excellent news for British manufacturing and for British car making. And the good news is that what's happening in the car industry is not uh, confined to Jaguar Land Rover. If you look at Nissan, if you look at Honda, if you look at Toyota, they are all expanding across our country and that's very good news for British manufacturing. Hugh Aranka Davis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. On the bus to the Commons today, I foolishly revealed to a fellow passenger that I was a Member of Parliament. Big mistake. Big mistake. After some light-hearted and customary abuse, our conversation <laughs> turned to life, the universe and commuting. So, can the Prime Minister tell me, and the man on the Peckham omnibus, if that journey t cost me 90 pence and a ken, how much did that same journey cost me today yeah. and a Boris? Yeah. The point I would make is that Ken, Ken twice promised to freeze fares and twice didn't deliver. But the difference between Boris and Ken is that Boris pays his taxes and Ken doesn't. 
person. On that very subject, I look forward in the budget later to measures on tax avoidance, but would the Prime Minister agree with me that people seeking high office in public life should set a better example? I think uh, the Honourable Lady makes an important point. I have to note uh, what Ken Livingston has said. He said that if he's elected Mayor of London, he will then fully pay his taxes. It's not... It's not for me to hand out political advice, but my advice would be to pay them before the campaign gets going. John Cryer. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Does the Prime Minister recognise that the introduction of regional pay would set hospital against hospital and school against school, as the business secretary has helpfully pointed out, and yet it would almost certainly push up the overall cost of public sector pay? Unless he can give us a guarantee here today, a promise, that if he introduces public, uh, regional pay, it will bring down the overall bill. Yeah. Well, what I'd say to the honourable gentleman is the last government introduced local pay into the court service. So the idea of looking at local pay for some public services is not some alien concept. It's a perfectly sensible thing to look at. And I also have to say, his front bench suggested that we look at local level of benefits in the debate about the benefits. So surely uh, he, he should be in favour rather than against. Mr. Richard Drax. I'm sure the Prime Minister shares with me and praises the work of the search and rescue helicopter service around our country. Does he share my concern that the loss of the Portland search and rescue helicopter in 2017 will threaten the lives of my constituents and damage the integrity of the search and rescue service on the south coast? I I totally agree with the Honourable Gentleman that a reliable search and rescue service is absolutely uh, vital. We have looked at keeping the Sea King helicopters, which is one of the things he suggested, but they wouldn't be able to provide a service as good or as capable as a modern fleet of helicopters. That's why we're planning uh, the changes, and we believe that should provide faster flying times and a more reliable service. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, following last year's riots, the Prime Minister came to the House and said we will help you repair the damage, get your businesses back up and running and support your communities. Last week, a report by the Metropolitan Police revealed that of the uninsured who made claims under the Riot Damages Act, only around half have been settled since last August. Does the Prime Minister agree with me this is simply not good enough? I do agree. There have been problems under the Riot Damages Act, and that's specifically why we also introduced a number of extra funds uh, run by the Department for Community and Local Government, and I think those funds have paid out faster. The Riot Damages Act is is, is right in a way uh, to have this piece of legislation, although it is quite out of date, but it does take time to make those payments, and I'll certainly do what I can to chase them up. Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, I I do say to the Prime Minister that we're eight months on from the riots. Now, the the, the Deputy Prime Minister, the Deputy Prime Minister hosted a, hosted a reception. I think the Honourable Gentleman opposite should listen to, to this very important issue about the riot. Now, at a reception last week organised by the Deputy Prime Minister, he and I met Amrit Kumi, owner of Ealing Green Supermarket, which was razed to the ground during the violence on August the 8th. She is still waiting to receive any compensation. Does the Prime Minister agree with me that eight months on, that's just not right? And does he further agree with me that ultimately it is the government's responsibility to make sure she gets the compensation she deserves? 
agree with the right honourable gentleman. I'll look into that specific case. As I said, one of the reasons why I introduced funds alongside the Riot Damages Act was to get that money out to local authorities faster. If he likes, I will put in the Library of the House of Commons a set of uh, information about what those funds did, where we've got to the Riot, with, got, where we've got to with the Riot Damages Act, and also I'll look into the individual case that he mentions. Mr. Ed Miliband. Talking, Mr. Speaker, about people who haven't been helped by that money that was provided to local authorities and can't get help. Now, now, Mr. Speaker, look, three, three things need to happen to make good on this. First of all, first of all, there needs to be proper information on the payments made under the Riot Damages Act as a matter of urgency, because there is no there is there is there is there is one report. They say there is information. There is information from the Metropolitan Police, but the reality is that the information available is very patchy about what is happening around the country. So, firstly, we need proper information. Secondly, I asked him to nominate a minister in the Home Office whose job it is to make sure these claims are paid. And thirdly, can he promise to come back to the House with a clear indication of when 100% of legitimate claims will be properly settled? I'm certainly happy to come back to the House, as I said, putting an answer in the House of Commons Library about all this information. On the individual case that he mentions, I understand it was a multiple claim because it was a shop also with a number of flats above it, but I accept eight months is too long. So We'll make progress on that individual case. And uh, the honourable member uh, in the Home Office, who's the policing minister, is taking a lead on this. But I've also held follow up meetings myself with DCLG and Home Office to make sure the money is paid out. Guito Beheb. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Prime Minister may be aware that the St. Dunstan's charity, which provides support for injured servicemen, has recently changed its name to Blind, Vets Blind Veterans UK. In order to raise awareness of this name change, will the Prime Minister join with me in visiting their new residential centre in Fladidno in order to see at first hand the wonderful work they do in supporting our veterans? Uh, I, I always enjoy my visits to Landudno and perhaps I will be able to schedule one uh, before long. I'd like to put on record uh, my thanks for the tireless and highly professional way that they assist former service personnel who tragically lost their sight. I think he pays them a great compliment, does his duty by explaining uh, the change in their name so people know who they are and can give money to them. As a country and as a government, we have a huge debt to pay to former service personnel. They, do, they have done extraordinary things on behalf of their country and we need to look after them through their life. And my right honourable friend, the Chancellor, will be making some announcements about that in his budget. Ian Lavery. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister said last year that under his government, unemployment would fall year on year. And here we are at this moment in time with a 17-year high record in unemployment. In my constituency, there's 55.4 people chasing every job vacancy. The Regional Growth Fund has supported only four businesses. Why should the 515 workers at Rio Tinto Alcan and the disabled workers at Rumploy and ma many others set to lose their job believe a single word? Well, first of all, on the specific case of the Rio Tinto plant, I know how important that is, and we're working with Northumbria County Council, with the company, to do what we can to help get those people work. Though I understand Rio Tinto are still in negotiations with a potential purchaser of that plant. What I'd say to him about employment and unemployment is clearly we need more jobs in our economy. But since the election, we've had over 600,000 new jobs in the private sector. The level of employment in the country is up by uh, around 200.
250,000, and there are fewer people on out-of-work benefits than that, there are fewer people on out-of-work benefits now than there were at the time of the election. And in terms of what's happening in the northeast, we should also celebrate the good news: the fact that Nissan is creating 2,000 jobs, the fact that Hitachi is building a new plant in County Durham, the fact that Newcastle Airport is expanding, the fact that Greggs are putting more money into the northeast. We should be talking up the northeast instead of talking it down. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. The running aground of a cargo vessel on a small island in the Minge showed the need for the emergency Coast Guard tug that was recently withdrawn from service. Will the Prime Minister please look into this as a matter of urgency, with a view to getting a replacement tug in place before a worse incident happens? Prime Minister. Well, I know this issue is being looked into at the moment, so I'm very happy to write to the Honourable Gentleman and give him the details. I know that he represents island communities that can be extremely cut off, particularly during the winter months, and he needs to know that those services are there, and I will write to him about that. Question number seven, closed question, Mr Graham Allen. Question seven, Mr Speaker. Well, first of all, let me pay tribute to the work the Honourable Gentleman does uh, in this area. Early intervention is absolutely central to what this Government is looking to achieve. That is how we are going to improve the life chances of the least well-off in our country and genuinely lift um, young people and children out of poverty. We will base funding decisions on what comes out of the first two years, but as he will know, the Early Intervention Grant, which is a crucial piece of, of Government funding and policy, is going to rise next year. Mr Graham Allen. May I thank the Prime Minister and indeed the leaders of all parties uh, in the Chamber, Mr Speaker, for their continuing support for early intervention. Early intervention not only helps babies, children and young people develop the social and emotional capability to make the best of themselves, but it saves the country billions of pounds in the long run. Uh, Would he and indeed the Chancellor uh, take this as the first representation, not for today's budget, but for next year's budget? Would he consider theming next year's budget around early intervention, bringing forward some proposals for tax changes to stimulate the social finance market that we heard about in earlier questions, and move 1% only of departmental budgets from late intervention to early intervention? Minister. Well, in terms of budget submissions, that was definitely an example of early intervention, and so I praise him uh, for the work that he's done. Uh, as he knows, we're going to be setting up the, um, the, the early intervention foundation that is going to be funded in order to make the arguments that he has put very effectively whichever side of the House he's been sitting on for very many years. I've certainly discussed this with my right hon. Friend, the Chancellor. What we're trying to do is look at all the mechanisms we have, whether it's backing nursery education, introducing a pupil premium, making sure the early intervention grant is going up, of actually putting the money in early to try and change people's life chances before it's too late. Alphon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Uh, is the Prime Minister aware that Harlow has the highest business growth in the whole of the United Kingdom? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks to a, con- a Conservative Council that is open for business and a Conservative-led government that has invested in an enterprise zone, increased apprentices and cut taxes, will the Prime Minister come to Harlow so we can show Britain how to lead the economic recovery? Yeah. Uh, in-, in danger of being accused of watching too much television, I think you can summarise his question as saying the only way is Essex. Um, uh, and I know he speaks up for his county. What I would say is congratulate Harlow on the fantastic achievement that they have. The government wants to play its part, not least by the enterprise zone in, in West Essex that's covering Harlow and we hope will create 5,000 new jobs. This is Mary Glyndon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. 
In North Tyneside, over 7,000 hard-working families depend on working tax credits to make ends meet, yet less than 200 people have to pay top-rate tax. Which of these groups does the Prime Minister think needs the most support in the Chancellor's budget? Yeah. What I can tell the Honourable Lady is we've increased the child tax credit by £255 last year, which was the biggest increase in its history, and it will go up by another £135,000 this year. And in terms of the very richest in our country, let me reassure her, after this budget they'll be paying more in tax. Mr Simon Hughes. As, as well as the Liberal Democrat priority to lift the tax threshold to £10,000, can the Prime Minister agree that one of the best ways of helping... Order! Mr Hughes must be heard. Simon Hughes. Does the Prime Minister agree that one of the best ways of helping families on low and medium incomes is to build more affordable housing throughout the country? And given Labour's legacy in London was 350,000 families on the waiting list, can he assure us that there will be more affordable housing both in London and across the country? We do want to get our housing market started again, including for affordable housing, and that's why the higher right-to-buy discounts, that money is going to go back into building affordable homes. At the same time, we're doing more to kick-start those places that have planning permission but can't get underway because of problems with bank and other finance, and that's why we're putting extra money into those schemes to make sure that building takes place this year or next year. John McDonnell. Some of the information used by the consulting association to blacklist trade unions must have come, could have only come from the police or the security services. When 3,000 mostly celebrities had their telephones hacked, the government set up a public inquiry under Leveson. The Home Secretary, when 3,200 trade unions have been blacklisted, many of them have lost their livelihoods. The Home Secretary simply suggested they go to the IPCC. Why is there one route to justice for celebrities and another for working people? Well, there is one law that has to cover everybody in this land, and if there is any uh, accusations of wrongdoing, that is something that the police, who are completely independent of government, can investigate, and that is what should happen. But let me say to the Honourable Gentleman, I say that on his behalf, but he could do something on everyone else's behalf. He runs the Right to Work campaign that is stopping young people from getting work experience places. If he cares about opportunity for young people, he'll give up that left-wing organisation. Jesse Norman. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, my county of Herefordshire has below average household income, but public funding for schools and healthcare in Herefordshire has for a long time been some of the lowest in the country. Does my right honourable friend share my view that this is unfair, and will he personally support measures to change the funding formulas and to get a fair deal for my county and for other similarly affected rural areas? Well, he will know we are looking at the funding formula for schools and we want to try and make it simpler so people can see what the criteria are and why their area receives the money that it does. But at the same time as that, we're also introducing the pupil premium, which will mean that parts of the country, like his, where there are quite high levels of deprivation in parts, will get specific funding for those children who are on free school meals, and that should help the funding of those schools that need the money the most. Debbie Abrahams. 
Minister do the honourable thing and publish the risk register, including the action that's, still, that's needed to mitigate the risks that this health bill still poses to patients? What I would say is that, um, as far as I can see, we have actually voted in this House of Commons twice on the same issue, and on both occasions, uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker, there was a significant majority in favour of the government's position. And I would also, I would also add, I would also add that the last government had many, many opportunities to publish risk registers, and they didn't do it. I always appreciate the Prime Minister's gratitude, yeah. I'm sure. Nick Bowles. Thank you, Mr Speaker. For ten years or more, leading Conservatives like the noble Lords Saatchi and Tebbit have argued for working people and pensioners on low incomes to be taken out of income tax altogether. <laughs> Does my right honourable friend agree that this is a thoroughly Conservative idea? say to my honourable friend is, almost uniquely, I'm not going to prejudge what is in the Chancellor's budget, um, but I think we can say, in reference to what he says, this is, if you like, Mr Speaker, a kaleidoscope budget. that the Prime Minister is using my language. Good on him. Tom Greatrix. Thank you, Mr Speaker. The Prime Minister may recall that at the time of the Strategic Defence and Security Review, he described it as a mistake and an error to use the short takeoff vertical landing variant of the Joint Strike Fighter. As the Ministry of Defence is about to perform a U-turn on that decision to rescind that original decision, doesn't he now un accept and understand that the real mistake and error has been in a defence review that's been inadequate and is fast unravelling? The real mistake and error was inheriting a £38 billion black hole in the defence budget. And to pay tribute to my right honourable friend, what he wants as defence secretary is to be the first defence secretary in a generation, frankly, to announce uh, a balanced and funded budget for defence for this year and for many years to come. That is what we are discussing. We will look at all of the evidence, all of the costings, and costings, as he will know, change in defence. But I do make Take this pledge. Unlike previous governments, if costs change and if facts change, we won't just plough on regardless and make wrong decisions for political reasons. Guardian Podcasts, sponsored by audible.co.uk. For a free download, be sure to check out guardian.co.uk slash free download, where Guardian listeners can choose any audiobook for free. See the page for more details.